Um, can, I, can I make a confession to you that maybe a pastor shouldn't make at church? Would it be okay if I shared something with you that may be less than appropriate for a pastor to say on a Sunday morning? Would that be okay? Um, some of the verses in the Bible bother me. Like I read some verses in the Bible and they bother me. Um, not because I think they're wrong. Um, not because I, you know, not, not even because I disagree with them. I, I believe the Bible's God's word. Um, I believe it has authority uh, over our life. I, you know, I believe it was inspired by God and it came to us. I believe it's God's plan for our life and reveals God's heart for the world. So they don't bother me because I believe they're wrong. But sometimes I'll read a verse that'll really challenge me to do something that I'm not doing and that bothers me. It just, you know, it just creates a little tension in my life. Sometimes I'll read a verse that convicts me to stop doing something that is a normal and regular part of my life. And that bothers me and creates tension in my life. Um, there's a lot of verses in the Bible that confront me with kind of who I've always been versus who God wants me to be or how I've always done things versus the way God created things to be done. Sometimes it reveals things in my life that are broken, um, that need healing or just a total kind of rewiring. But growing up in church, um, I don't know that any verses after a lifetime in church have bothered me as much is Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. That's where we're going to land today in our Bible study time. If you have a Bible, Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46, you can also fire up the JCI app. Uh, it'll have all the sermon notes and the scripture um, that we have. Uh, if you're using a regular Bible, Matthew chapter 25, remember we always have Bibles at the door if you want to grab one on your way in. Our ushers today might even walk down the aisles with them. So if you need one, just wave at them because we're going to read quite a bit and it's easier to follow along if you have one in your hands. Um, so just grab one from the ushers if you need one. If you don't have a Bible, put your name in this one and just take it home. But in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46, we look at something that Jesus is pretty passionate about. And here's what we've said about our church. We opened our building three weeks ago, um, two weeks ago today, and we said this. As we open our building, let's, um, let's talk about Jesus, not journey, our first six weeks in the building. That was our goal. Let's, let's talk about who Jesus is, not about what journey is the first six weeks in the building. So our, two weeks ago, we talked about the cause of Jesus. Jesus said, hey, here's why I've come. I've come to help broken people. I've come to give good news to people who are just sick of hearing bad news. Last week, we talked about the command of Jesus. Jesus saying, hey, here's how you should live your life loving God and loving people. And today, we're going to look at the compassion of Jesus and his followers. We're going to look at what Jesus says a Christian looks like in how they love and care for people. And it's a text that bothers me a little bit when we get to the end of it. And I'm going to tell you why in just a minute. If you haven't already, pull out your sermon notes out of your bulletin so you can follow along. But here's, here's a text that's given me a lot of trouble probably the last 10 years. It says in verse 31 of Matthew chapter 25, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, He's going to sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he's going to separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? 
when do we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you didn't look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick and in prison and did not help you? He'll reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This text has bothered me for a lot of reasons for several years now. And and for this reason, just to kind of bring it into context, Jesus is talking about basically in times. Jesus is talking about that, that day in the, in the eternal future, um, when the whole world is gathered before him and he begins to separate people based on people who love Jesus, who have followed Jesus, who want to be with Jesus forever, to give them a, a kingdom forever um, that, you know, the Bible talks about a place being called heaven, um, and separating out people who did not love Jesus, did not want to follow Jesus, don't want to be with Jesus forever, um, and sending them to an eternity without Jesus in a place that the Bible calls hell. I mean, that's what this is a picture of. What's it going to be like at the end times? And Jesus says, it's going, to be, it's going to be really easy. People are going to be separated into two categories based on these things. And I'll be honest, I don't like the category that I end up here, especially not after a lifetime in church. I had been told that there was an eternity with God or an eternity without God. And, you know, that we could, based on our decision and relationship with Jesus, we could determine and decide where we wanted to go and who we wanted to be with. But I was told at the end of time that, that maybe the, the picture would look more like this. Jesus would stand up and he'd say, okay, everyone who's said a prayer, everyone who's raised their hand, everyone who's walked an aisle, everyone who's been baptized, everyone who goes to church, like you guys are over here. And the people who don't do that, you're over here. Like I was surprised that the list that Jesus gives is not the list that I had been given my entire life. And it confused me. Was my list wrong? Like, is that, is that not how you become a Christian? You don't say a prayer. You don't connect with the God of the universe. You don't get baptized and share your story and, and try to start, fo- like, start following Jesus. Is that not what Christianity is? And I went back and looked, and that certainly is a piece of Christianity. But it's just the beginning. Like, that's not the entire picture of Christianity. So then I began to ask this question. After being born and raised in church my entire life, like, I was one of those kids that, like, I'm, I don't know what day I was born, but I promise you the Sunday after, I was in church. I was raised going to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, a couple of revivals during the course of the year, youth group, Bible quizzing, Awana, you name it, we were church people. Like, the only drug problem I ever had is I got drugged to church. Every time the doors were open, it was like, get in the car, you're going to church. Like, I was a church kid, right? And in my late 20s, I hear this, and I was a church kid who didn't look like what Jesus said a follower of Jesus looked like, and it bothered me. I I was a little upset. I thought, has someone been holding out on me? Like, have my pastors and teachers known my entire life that this is what a Christian's supposed to look like, but nobody's really told me that? And I, I was conflicted because I realized if this is what Christianity really was, that my Christianity was less than fully developed. I was bothered because if this is the picture that Jesus said Christians should look like when they fully mature, I realized that there was something missing in my faith and in my Christianity. And I'd ask myself, if as a Christian my life doesn't look like what Jesus says a Christian's life should look like, 
what's missing or what haven't I learned yet that I can put into practice? And I found two things. Through a study of Matthew chapter 5, I found two things that help me and I believe can help you develop a life of Christianity that looks like what Jesus says a life of Christianity should look like. Maybe you're like me in here. Maybe you're brand new to faith and this is going to be a next step for you. Maybe like me, you've been born and raised in church your entire life, but your Christianity does not look like what Jesus says Christianity should look like. And maybe today you're going to get to take a big step forward as we find out how Jesus says you become a Christian that looks like this. Number one, as we look into Matthew chapter 25, we see Jesus say Christians who look like this are Christians whose lives are eternally focused. And I don't know what your life is like spiritually, but if you're a Christian, your life should be eternally focused. Now, I don't mean by this like focused for an eternity. I'm not talking about a long attention span. I'm saying focused on eternity, like focused on the life after this one. This whole conversation in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, which is the whole of this teaching, started with a question from some teenagers about what it was going to be like at the end of time, like at the very end of the world. I did student ministry for seven years. I love youth ministry because students ask questions that adults have but are too ashamed to ask. Like they're just not embarrassed to ask the craziest faith questions you could imagine having, but they're all really good questions. And Jesus' disciples, almost all of them were teenagers. And in Matthew chapter 24, if you have your Bible, flip over just a few pages to your left. In Matthew 24, 3, his disciples came up to him. They'd been hanging out in Jerusalem. Jesus had told him that there was going to be a great war to kind of end the world. And they were like, well, when is that going to happen? So in Matthew 24, 3, it says, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when's this going to happen? What's going to be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? The disciples were eternally focused. They wanted to know like when the world was ending so they could be ready for it. It was Benjamin Franklin who famously said, in this world, nothing can be certain except death and taxes. And we've all paid taxes. And if you haven't, don't tell anyone because you're supposed to. Um, we can help you with that if you, you know, we can pray with you and find you a good tax attorney. But let me ask, do, do you ever think about the end? Like, do you ever think about the end of the world? Like, just the end of time? I spent this summer reading books by scientists. Um, some Christian scientists, some atheist scientists, some agnostic scientists. Just trying to, as a pastor, better understand science and faith and how to help people who have questions in those areas kind of learn some things. Do you know that even a lot of atheistic and agnostic scientists believe that the universe will one day end like like it's coming to an end, like the world may just implode, you know, in a black hole upon itself. Like even people who like don't read the Bible are thinking about the end. Do you think about the end ever? Do you think about your end? I mean, you know, all of us are going to die, right? Like if I'm the first person who's ever introduced that fact to your life, I'm sorry that you had to hear it this way. But even if that statement is a shock to you, that one day you're going to die, like if that sends shivers down your spine, if you're the type of person that says, I don't want to talk, like don't say that, I don't want to talk about that. Are you, are you trying to scare me or manipulate you into something? No, I'm just telling the truth. Like one day we're, we're going to die. Like my mom and dad's pastor just south of Chicago three weeks ago came to his church. He'd been healthy all his life, 61 years old. He asked his church three weeks ago to pray for him because he'd just been diagnosed with cancer. He died on Monday. Listen, 25 days after finding out he had cancer, he died. 
But he told his church, you know, I've got cancer. I, I, you know, I don't want to die, but I know it's, it's, a part of, it's a part of this life. I'm going to. So pray that I'll live, and if I don't, that I might bring God glory and death somehow. Like, like it's, a, it's a part of life. You know, the Bible treats death as a fact of life for the focusing of life. The Bible never treats death as fear. Like, it's not something to be afraid of. But the Bible says, hey, we should understand the fact of death so we can get focused on life. Like, understanding this life ends makes us hopefully want to make this life count. Hebrews 9.27 says it this way, just as people are destined to die once and after that face judgment, Hebrews basically says, hey, hey, here's two things you need to know. You're terminal and you're accountable. What does that mean? Your life is going to come to an end. And one day, you're going to be held account for how you spend it. So, so knowing you've only got one, and that one day it'll be over, man, live it well. See, in the New Testament, getting past the reality of death allows people to move on to the importance of life. So Jesus treated eternal life. Jesus treated the next life. Jesus treated eternal things as things of importance so that we could focus on what was truly most important in life. And as we read through this text, we see that Christians with an eternal focus, they live their lives four ways. Over Matthew 24 and 25, the disciples said, tell us what it's going to be like at the very end of time. So Jesus told four stories, each of them saying, kind of here's how to get ready. Here's how people who are focused on the end live their life. Number one, they live their life watching. He said, Matthew 24, 36 through 51, at the end, it's, it's going to be like this. And he tells a story about people who are waiting on someone to come home. And he said, the people who are just always diligent, knowing it's coming, like they're going to be the ones who are ready, the ones who are watching. Had several people a few months ago frantically contact me when Russia, and I don't know how much you're up on world politics, but Russia several months ago moved ground troops into Syria in the fight with Assad and all that was going on there. And I had several people like the day that was announced who called me and said, are you aware of this and are you worried about this? And I said, yes, I'm aware of this. No, I'm not really worried. So well, why would people do that? Because the Bible says in prophecy... Prophecy is the parts of the Bible that tells the future and says these things will happen before these things happen. You can look at the future and understand the future by prophecy. Prophecy says that before the end, like right before the end, there'll be a king from the north from a country called Rosh who will invade Israel through the north from ancient Assyria, which is today modern-day Syria. So the Bible would say like right before the end, we think Russia will invade Israel from Syria. So when Russia put troops on the ground in Syria, people who know the Bible and who are watching for the end said, hey, is this, like, could this be a sign? I said, maybe. So were you worried? No. I mean, not, honestly, not for me, no. For my kids, yeah. Yeah, it worries me, thinking about the world after I leave for my kids, for my grandkids. My kids are very young. Don't say congratulations. Neither of them is getting ready like, to have a grandbaby anytime soon, but yeah. Like for my grandkids, yeah, sometimes I worry about the world they'll grow up in. Why? Because I watch. Jesus said people who live focused on not just this life but the next one, they kind of watch to get an idea. Number two, Jesus said people with an eternal focus, they live their lives preparing. In Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13, he told a story about people who knew there was more to what was happening than what was doing. So they always spent time preparing for the things that were to come. You know, I don't know if if you watch the news or if you're into sports at all, but in the past few weeks, there's been a a couple pretty well-known athletes that have been boycotting the national anthem. Um, They've been either sitting out the anthem or taking a knee to kind of draw attention to some discrimination that they're pretty passionate about 
that they want to speak up about, that they want to bring some conversation to. And I walked downstairs in my house the other day, and it was on TV, and Daniel's like, hey, what do you, what do you think of these people doing that? And it's, I had a weird answer for her. Um, regarding the anthem, I said, you know, I, honestly, for me personally, like I can't imagine anything ever happening that would, that would make me not stand at attention for our national anthem. I love our country. I love what it stands for. I have deep respect for the men and women who fight for it and even first responders here who keep us safe. Um, I love the thought of America and what I believe it still stands for globally. I had dinner Thursday with an immigrant from Azerbaijan and one from Ukraine who just talked about what America was to them coming from where they came from. And I thought, that's why I'm proud to be an American. Like, I, I can't imagine ever not standing at attention for our national anthem. However... I told Danielle, I said, you know, the Bible says that the most discriminated group in the world in the future is going to be Christians. And I hope when the world starts discriminating against Christians that someone with a voice louder than ours will stand up and say something. So how do you know that? Did you read that in the New York Times? No, I read that in the New Testament. Like the Bible says we can prepare for that life. Let me ask you a question. Are you prepared to live for Jesus when it's not celebrated, when it's not even convenient? Like, do you know there's a lot of countries in the world today where Sunday is a normal day, it's a federal work day like every other day, and people go to church from like 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. before they go off to work on Sunday, or they go to church from 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. before they go back to work on Monday morning? Like, would you inconvenience yourself if Christianity wasn't kind of a cultural norm in the world that we live in? Will you still live for Jesus when it's countercultural to do so? Like, are you prepared to be all in? Because when you live for eternity and you focus on eternal things, you're just prepared to be engaged at a different level. Thirdly, Jesus said people who live their life focused on eternity, they live their life investing in eternity. In Matthew chapter 25, he talks about people who realize the talents and the gifts and the things that they've been given. And he said people who understand eternity, they, they invest their time and their talent and their treasure in the life beyond this one. Do you know that you can come to our church every Sunday for the rest of your life and never give a penny and get the exact same ministry experience from our team, from our elders, from our volunteers? Like, you don't have to ever give anything here to be ministered to. But there are some of you, like, you came from a church background, you understand what it means to tithe, and you've been disengaged in investing for a long time. You know what? We'd love for you to invest here when you feel comfortable and to help us help people focus on the next life. There's some of you who like Christianity is so brand new and you don't even know if you're supposed to give or what to give. But you know, when you hear offering stuff, you think, man, I'd like to be a part of that. We'd love for you to give and invest because we believe when you give here, you're investing in helping people get ready for the next life, not just financially, but of your time and of your talents. Jesus said, people who focus on eternity, they invest their life someplace and then fourthly, he ended with what we read today. So people who are focused on eternity, they live their lives to help others. And in Matthew 25, 31 through 46, he gives this big talk about what it looks like when they help others. So I had to learn as I studied this and as my faith grew, as my faith began to develop, I had to learn that Christians should be eternally focused, that that would change how we see life and what we look like to Jesus. But I also learned, number two, that Christians should be others focused. That is the message of Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46, that eventually as you begin to follow Jesus, you begin to see what Jesus sees and you begin to help people. 
You know, as I look at this message, Christians should be eternally focused. Christians should be others focused. And then I looked at where I was in my late 20s and 30s. I had to ask, God, how does such a gap exist in my late 20s and early 30s between who I am spiritually and who Jesus says I should be spiritually? Like, why am, why am I not where I need to be? You know, why, why do I not feel like a sheep or a goat? Like, I know I'm not a goat, but I don't do the things a sheep does. What, what's wrong with my faith that I haven't gotten to the point where I look like one of Jesus' followers in Matthew chapter 25? And here's what I believe Jesus began to reveal to my heart. There's a huge difference between finding Jesus and following Jesus. And in just a minute, I'm going to show you a picture of what that looks like. But there's a massive difference between finding Jesus and following Jesus. And there are some of you here today, you're like I was 10 years ago. You have found Jesus, but you don't yet follow Jesus. You say, how do I know? Because your life does not look like Matthew chapter 25. There's a gap between finding Jesus and following Jesus. And what I have learned when it comes to finding Jesus and following Jesus is is that until your faith follows Jesus, it won't have the fruit that Jesus says it should have. Which means until you really begin to follow Jesus, you won't look like the Christian that Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 25. Now, some of you right now are even struggling with my theology. You're like, wait a minute. Can you even find Jesus without following Jesus? Yes, you can. How do you know? Because the Bible says so. We meet a group in Corinth that makes me feel good as a pastor of this church. Because let me give you a little background on Corinth. The Apostle Paul was a guy who started churches all over the world. He went to a city called Corinth and he started a church there. And the Bible says he started church by having church every day for 18 months. I want you to think about that. Every day for 18 months. I would never ask you to come to church every day for 18 months because I ain't coming to church every day for 18 months. So we're going to have a little difference in how we do church that way. But Paul, every day for 18 months, he taught people who Jesus was and many people found Christ and then he left to go start other churches and 18 to 36 months later or nearly five years after the start of the church he wrote a letter to people who had found Jesus and he said man you found him but you're not following him yet you know why it made me feel good because we have people in our church who five years ago found Jesus and they're still not following Jesus and as a pastor it makes me wonder do I not know how to preach do I not know how to lead Is our discipleship program broken? Do our small groups stink? How can people find Jesus but not follow Jesus? It's been almost five years. Shouldn't everyone be following Jesus? And then you read what the Apostle Paul wrote, and you think, okay, at least it's not just us. If it's just us today, well, at least there was one before us. Because in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, Paul was writing to people who five years earlier had found Jesus. And listen to what he said to them. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you weren't ready for it yet. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly. For since there's jealousy... And quarreling among you. Are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? Paul said, listen, five years ago you found Jesus. When are you going to start acting like a Christian? It's a great question. Five years ago you found Jesus. When are you going to start acting like a Christian? You see, I found that for me, the gap that existed between what my Christianity looked like and what Jesus said a Christian should look like was kind of twofold. One, it was my own personal spiritual immaturity. Just was selfish and didn't care a whole lot about other people. Secondly, I realized my life lacked some spiritual commitment in areas 
that Jesus needed me to let go of so that I could follow better. It was like I met Jesus and Jesus said, hey, that's great. I'm so glad you've met me. Um, I need you to drop some of these things in your life and add some of these things and follow me. And it was like, no, Jesus, actually, I want you and this. Can't I just hang on to both? And I was a finder of Jesus. I was a serial finder of Jesus. But I very rarely ever followed for a long time. And what I found out is that creates a gap between who you are and who Jesus wants you to be because do you know the needs of others are always visible right past the needs of yourself? And the reason that we don't every day see needs in every corner of our world is because we haven't let Jesus meet our needs yet and we haven't followed him totally and completely. You see, one of the things that I'm really, really excited about as we get into next year um, is that people I believe at our church are going to find healing. Because I don't believe that if, if, if we don't find healing for ourselves, I believe if we don't find healing for ourselves, we'll never see hurting in other people. And as a church, we've got to figure out how to put together a pathway for people that not only helps them get strong, helps them get mature spiritually, but it helps them stay strong spiritually and it helps them stay mature spiritually. How, how are we going to do that? Well, next year at our church is themed Fully Alive. We said, let's just look at what the Bible says about all the areas of the church where people may have needs that are keeping them from seeing the needs of others. So as we look at fully alive next year, we're looking at what it looks like to have a marriage centered around Jesus. We're going to look at what it looks like next year to have a family centered around Jesus. We're going to look at what it looks like to finally face some fears in your life you've been running from your whole life and believe what Jesus says about your fears and courage. We're going to look at how to make tough decisions together through the lens of making decisions Jesus tells us to make so we can be fully alive. But I'm excited because in January, we start the entire year off with this series called Mood Swingers. And it's all about getting finally emotional healing in our life so that we can have spiritual vision for others. We are in January as a church going to enter a small group season together studying a curriculum that I think will be the most transformational thing our church has ever done. It's a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And the whole basis of the book is that until you get emotionally healthy, you cannot be spiritually mature. Memorize the books of the Bible. You can memorize verses. You can know the creeds. You can quote the commandments. But until you get healthy emotionally and allow Jesus into some dark corners of your life, until you experience healing in your heart, you'll never be able to see hurting in other people. And we're going to challenge everyone in here to give Jesus access to every need in your life so that you can get healthy enough to see the hurts and the needs of others. You have to give Jesus access to every need in your life in order to eventually move on and see the needs of others. Are you willing to do that? I mean, I want you to think about that for a minute. Are you willing to give Jesus access to that secret that nobody knows but you and God? Are you willing to give Jesus access to that so that you might finally be healed? Are you willing to give Jesus access to that habit that you've had your entire life that you've just thought is a part of your DNA, but God has something better for you? Are you willing to give Jesus access to that hurt that you've been hanging on to for too long and you, you can't get healthy until you can get healed from that? Are you willing to give Jesus access to that person 
who every day seems to kind of tweak you in the wrong direction? Are you willing to finally admit that you might have an addiction? That you don't have a bad habit, you have an addiction and you just can't stop. Are you willing to give Jesus access to that? Are you willing to give Jesus access to that pain that you feel every day? Physically, emotionally, spiritually. Are you willing to give Jesus access into a relationship that you can't figure out? You and your husband, you and your wife, you and your kids, you and your parents. You just can't figure it out, but you've not let Jesus in yet. Are you willing to give Jesus access to that moment or that memory that you still wake up thinking about at night, that you still fear from time to time, that's decades in your past, but it lives at the very front of your brain? You see, you have to give Jesus access, unlimited access every moment, every day of your life if you want to experience healing so that you can see hurt in others and become who Jesus says we should become. That's the story of the Bible. That's the story of the gospel. That's the truth of Scripture. Do you know what the gospel is? I mean, the the most basic gospel message that has to be embraced by Jesus' followers is this. The gospel says, I'm totally broken. But Jesus can completely heal me over a lifetime and into eternity. I'm totally broken. The gospel begins with a statement of brokenness. The gospel doesn't say, even though the song is cute, I am weak, but he is strong. You're not weak, you're broken. The gospel doesn't say, I was broken, but now I'm healed. No, the gospel says, I am broken every moment of every day without Jesus. But if I will follow him every moment of every day, I can be healed completely. The gospel to me was summarized best with a friend that I had who I did ministry with, who I used to introduce everywhere he spoke as a recovering alcoholic. And after doing that several times, he came up to me after one of the times that he did ministry and he said, Christian, man, I appreciate your sincerity, but you kind of don't know the path I live, but I need you to quit introducing me as a recovering alcoholic. I am not a recovering alcoholic. I'm not a recovered alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic. Today, I'm a sober alcoholic. But the minute I think I have recovered or I'm getting better, the minute that I forget that I'm an alcoholic, it all goes downhill for me. I am an alcoholic every day for the rest of my life. Just today, I'm a sober alcoholic. I thought, man, that's a great picture of the mindset of the gospel. I'm broken. I'm not recovering. I'm not recovered. I'm broken. All day, every day, I'm broken. And the minute I think I'm not broken anymore, I've actually just distanced myself from Jesus a little bit. But the moment-by-moment brokenness that I admit allows me to lean into and follow Jesus. You see, it's that gospel that helps us see Jesus and to see him every moment of every day of our life. And then Jesus helps us see the world. But we have to figure out a way to get beyond finding Jesus, and we have to start following Jesus. Let me, let me show you a picture that might help that a little bit. Scott, come up here for just a minute, if you would. Scott, for this illustration, is going to be Jesus. Even wearing a Broncos jersey, he's going to be Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus came for six sinful people. It makes sense that he would wear a Broncos jersey if that's who he's trying to reach. So we get it. But Scott, Scott's going to be Jesus. I'm just going to be the rest of us. The Bible says that the whole world lives with their eyes on Jesus. Now, they don't know it's him. But Ecclesiastes 3.11 says God has implanted eternity into our hearts so that we're always looking for more. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says on our very best day, We go to bed knowing there's something more. We are all born to see Jesus 
and to grasp the more that he has. Now, a lot of us, we don't see it in Jesus. We find it in money. We find it in our career. We find it in activities. We find it in relationships. We find it in drugs and alcohol. It is the more that we're trying to pursue. But it is the pursuit of Jesus. And every now and then, somebody will stumble into a church or a revival or a crusade or be watching on TV or a youth group and they'll find Jesus. They'll see who Jesus is. They'll find Jesus and they'll be introduced to Jesus. And for that moment, their life has changed. You know, I found Jesus. He's forgiven me. And Jesus says, I'm so glad you have found me. Now follow me. Actually, two different steps. The rich young ruler in the New Testament, when we find out he found Jesus, he found Jesus and said, I'm so glad I found you. And Jesus said, I'm so glad you found me. However, I need you to lay aside your materialism. I need you to lay aside your love of money. I need you to lay aside putting money in career first and I need you to follow me. And the rich young ruler said, no, no, no. Like, I'm happy finding you, but I'm not, I can't follow. If that's what following takes, I'm glad I found you, but I can't follow you. And he kind of drifted away. And some of us do this. We find Jesus, the commitment that he asks is too much, so we kind of drift away. And then, then we go to youth camp, right? And it's like we find Jesus again because everyone finds Jesus at youth camp. And it's like, oh, I found Jesus again. Jesus is like, man, I'm so glad you're back. Um, but I want you to follow me this time. However, that boyfriend or girlfriend that you know doesn't love me and they're not in this with you spiritually, you're probably not going to be able to follow me with them in your life. That brokenness you refuse to admit that guilt you refuse to lay aside, I'd like you to follow me, but I need you to lay that to the side first. And those steps are so hard for us, we kind of back away again and think, you know, I'm so glad I found him. But I mean, if that's the cost of following, I don't, know that, I don't know that I can do that. Then we have a revival at church and we find Jesus again. And it's like, oh man, I need you so much and I'm so far away from you. And Jesus, and Jesus said, man, I'm so glad you're back. Now, let's change some of those activities so you can start following me again. Let's start changing your attitude towards church and let's let God be priority and start following me now. And we're like, oh, well, man, I'm so glad I found you, but I, I can't do that yet. So we kind of back away. Then we go on a mission trip, right? You get it. We find Jesus. Then we experience tragedy and we find Jesus. We live a life finding Jesus, but our eyes are focused on Jesus, right? I mean, as long as I'm finding Jesus, where are my eyes always focused? Anyway, Jesus, right? And I was taught that that's, I mean, that's what Christianity is. Focus on Jesus, and one day Jesus is going to say, everyone who's lived life looking at me, that, that's what heaven is. Come on. But Jesus said it's something different. Jesus said those who follow me, they see different. They see more. You see, following looks like this. You find Jesus, and Jesus said, man, I'm so glad you found me. But I want you to lay aside your life and follow me. And finally you say, okay, Jesus, I'll do that. And as you begin to follow Jesus, do you see Jesus, yes or no? What else do you see? You begin to see everything Jesus sees. You begin to see people who are thirsting for something more in their life. For the first time, it's not just about you. You looking through the eyes of Jesus, you begin to see people hungry for a second chance at life because their first chance, they just got it wrong. You begin to see people who feel naked emotionally and they need someone to, to like wrap their arms around them and, and tell them they don't have to live in shame and, and their life is not exposed to the world. What's exposed to God, he loves and he forgives. You find people who are sick in their current marriage, sick in their parenting, sick in their job, but we go visit them. You find people who are in a prison of their past 
who needs someone to step into their prison. You see, when you follow Jesus rather than finding Jesus, you see Jesus every day, but it's like you put on Jesus' goggles and all of a sudden now you see the world through the eyes of Jesus and everything changes. Give Jesus a hand. You can sit down, Scott. You see, when you follow Jesus rather than finding Jesus, your eyes see what Jesus' eyes are looking at. And folks, our community and our world needs Christians who follow Jesus, not just who keep finding him over and over and over again. And man, God is so gracious. You say, well, how many many times can I find Jesus before he turns me away? As many as you need. When Jesus talked about forgiveness, he used a phrase, 70 times seven, it basically means as many as you need infinity, you just keep forgiving people. Say, how many times will Jesus stand open and let me find him and ask me to follow him every time? But you miss a whole world if you spend your life finding Jesus and you never start following Jesus. And I want you to know about 10 years ago after being challenged with this text and finally laying down my entire life to follow Jesus, I started to see people. And I want you to know I I see you today. Our church sees you. But we only see you because Jesus sees you and he's looking at you. And he's asked us to see through his eyes so we can be his hands and his feet and his servants and his ministers. I believe God has a great future for you. I believe God has moment by moment, day by day, week by week, healing for you over this lifetime and into eternity. But regardless of where you're at spiritually, that journey takes a while. I'm going to ask all of you to really engage and commit to our church between now and Easter, like nine months. Say, well, that's a long commitment to make. Why? Because spiritual healing is not a sprint. It's a marathon. Christian commitment is not a sprint. It's a marathon. Today, nothing will happen that will radically change your life, but a seed can be planted that if you allow it to grow, it can result in a different view, a different mindset. It can result in spiritual fruit because of you follow. See, I believe if some of you will lock in, get to church on Sunday mornings, get engaged in a small group in January, begin to open the doors of your heart that have been locked tight for a long time and give Jesus access to everything, I believe some of you are gonna experience the healing that you're beginning to think is not possible anymore. I believe some of you are gonna find answers the questions that you've had for a long, long time. And if you don't find all the answers, at least you're gonna find a place to start looking for the answers that's healthy. Some of you are gonna find some relationships that you've been looking for that will really sweeten your life. Put people around you who can help you. Some of you in the next nine months will learn how to give Jesus access to closets and attics in your life that you have long closed off to the world. Because you realize if you can't find healing, you'll never be able to provide ministry for anyone who's hurting. See, I believe if you can find healing, you can find your purpose and who God has created you to be, how God has created us to see the world and how God has created us to move into the world and help people. But the needs of others are just right there beyond the needs of self. So what need do you have that Jesus can meet today? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes as we...